The Care Matters podcast is brought to you by the ESRC Centre for Care and CIRCLE, the Centre for International Research on Care, Labour and Equalities. In this series, our researchers welcome experts in the field and those giving or receiving care to discuss crucial issues in social care as we collectively attempt to make a positive difference to how care is experienced and provided. Hello and welcome to another episode of Care Matters. My name is Maria Cheshire Allen and I'm a researcher at the Centre for Aging and Dementia Research at Swansea University. Um, And I've also recently completed my PhD on the question of what does well-being mean in the context of care of older people and why does it matter? So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about this idea of well-being as it applies to unpaid family care and particularly carers of older people living with dementia. So we know that well-being is a highly debated and a contested issue, um, but broadly speaking, um, it usually involves thinking about living a good life or a life of your choosing. And this usually involves reference to ideas of balance, equilibrium, absence of stress or disease. Um, And often it refers to ideas around maximisation of happiness or flourishing. And some frameworks of well-being do, in fact, include care as an essential feature of of living a good life. And a leading well-being theorist, Martha Nussbaum, includes care in her list of um, capabilities. So in the UK and elsewhere, it has become nested within social care support programmes and in legislation. So in England, we have the Care Act and here in Wales, we have the Social Services and Wellbeing Act. And so the idea of well-being is used as a central organising principle in which state-provided care services are planned and delivered. And my research really aimed to look at what well-being means in the context of unpaid care of older people and so responds to the broader problem of well-being failures experienced by many family carers. And I was really focused on exploring um, and understanding the mismatch between the broad legislation and strategy that aims to promote well-being and the consistent evidence um, showing significant well-being failures experienced by many family carers. And I took a particular way of understanding well-being and care informed by a broad sort of social justice perspective um, and in specifically in relation to well-being what is known as the capabilities approach and in relation to understanding care and ethics of care approach. And I looked at the research, the policy application, and most importantly, I carried out some interviews with qualitative interviews with family carers themselves um, to explore this mismatch a bit further. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about these issues in a bit more detail and through the theme of the right to be me, well-being responses for family carers of older people living with dementia. So I'm really pleased to have with me here today, Irene Mortimer from Swansea Carer Centre and Jude Dale. Jude, would you mind introducing yourself? Oh, hi, my name's Jude. I was a family carer um, for my dad who had dementia. I also volunteer with Dementia Friendly Swansea and I've been involved with the creation of the new Dementia Hub, which is open in the city centre. 
Irene, would you mind introducing yourself? I'm Irene. I'm the representative for Swansea Carers Centre. So as an organisation, we support unpaid carers who make sure that people live in the community, whether they have a disability or a chronic condition. And our aim is to put a scaffolding support around people, um, putting services such as welfare benefits, counselling, respite care, activities, wellbeing training. And it's all about putting those services in to show that there's an acknowledgement there that carers need to have a life of their own. And in doing so, creating the resilience, but also pinpointing and highlighting to carers that take away the guilt and have some permission to be me time to create, as I said, to create that resilience and um, be able to keep on going in their care role. In no other job would you would you be working for 24 hours a day, seven days a week without occupational health or annual leave? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really interested, my research was really interested, like I say, in, in this mismatch between quite strong policy rhetoric about promotion of care and well-being um, and the legislation for, for the first time places um, rights um, alongside carers and to have this um, right to a well-being assessment um, which can determine the type of support that they, they can have to promote their well-being. And I know the Carer Centre and, and Jude yourself have been involved in um, receiving these wellbeing assessments and just really interested in your views given these policies and, and um, legislation whether the the idea of balance or well-being um, is something that's attainable um, maybe for some carers and maybe not for others and what what happens when the balance is tipped in the wrong direction or conversely whether it's um, you know where, where there's some some good news stories as well where these assessments are working well Jude, do you want to say anything about your experience of receiving the wellbeing assessment? Well, this is quite a while ago now uh, that we had the assessments. When it was done for my parents, because my my mother was my dad's main carer, so the assessments were done primarily for supposed to be for her wellbeing as well as, well as my dad's. But from what she told me was that it all revolved around my dad. So, yes, he did need to have assessments, you know, to, to, for his health needs and, and um, emotional needs. However, when it came to her assessment, it was all about how she was looking after him. How she felt was that she was just an extension of him. She wasn't a person treated in her own right with her own, you know, likes, preferences or anything. She was just pushed into the background and almost like an extension of him. And she had the feeling that she would always be there, the backup person. She just didn't feel like a person in, in her own in her own right. So basically what we took from it was that all they did was, was look after dad. But if people want us to look after dad, like we're saying, it's, it's a 24-hour role, how can the carer and the family be disregarded in this way? If you want everyone to be looked after and you want to make sure that every, everyone's well-being is going well you know the carer has to be put more more at the forefront I'm not saying more needs than than the person that's being cared for but at least on equal footing yeah absolutely Irene you're you're involved in actually carrying out the the assessments now as well for, through Swansea Carers Centre 
Yes, we are. Um, in 2016, I was part of a pilot scheme where I was based at the West Hub in Swansea, part of the social services scheme. And um, the Health and Wellbeing Act was quite new then. So there was a lot of motivation to do care assessments. And then with a five-year gap, Swansea Care Centre have now taken on some of the carers' assessments. And it's exactly that. It's for the carer. I think I think the word assessment is um puts a lot of people off. I've had carers saying, Well, what if I you know, what if I fail the assessment? But I always say, No, this is about you. This is about you to make sure that you have life of your own as well as your care own. And it's looking at um carers' health care as emotional and physical health, um, looking to see about maintaining relationships. So some people may have had the care for coming into their family home, which upsets the dynamics of the family itself. Has it, um, has it affected their uh, relationships with friends? Because there's only so many times you can say, no, I can't come because of my care role before people stop coming or ringing. And then, and then of course, that upsets the whole support network. So what we've done is looked at it holistically. Um, the carer's assessment will ask the carers, and I have to keep reminding carers, no, this is about you, because as Jude says, in some of the carer's assessments, I think they've been clumped in as one. The assumption is that if services are put in for the cared for, then therefore some of the weight is taken off your shoulders, carer, and therefore your life was better. But that's not enough. They need to have a quality of life. Uh, one lady said to me, I've forgotten who I am which is very sad. So then, you know, it's a, it's quite a long process. It's not something that can be rushed and it's not something that can be clumped in with somebody else's assessment. So as I said, we've looked at it holistically. So we've looked at, it is the key. It is the key to accessing services. And we look at the barriers to carers accessing services or having a life of their own and then um, a care plan is formulated and that care plan could be just the carer saying to themselves I give myself permission to be me I give myself permission to have time to meet friends and give myself equal balance to the care that I give to the cared for so if I take one of the care packages I've just done, I've used care repair because there were repairs needed in the home, OT assessments, physiotherapy. So that's up to us to see what's, what's needed both for the carer. And then it comes to what about you? And it might be looking for a yoga class. It might be referring to them to our counselling service. Or as I said, it might be just chat to say, remember you? Now, you know, what's going to create res resilience and give yourself a bit of joy in your life what's really interesting i think um for for both of you and as a carer and someone providing support for carers is why it's so difficult for people to connect with that idea of i have this right to too much to promote and nurture my own well-being and, and just interested in your views on on why you think think that is i know we talked about the idea of the of guilt a lot of the time um, with carers and really interested in your views on, on that. I think, um, I know in my particular case is that we felt that we didn't feel that we were carers. It wasn't until we got in touch with um, the Swansea Carer Centre that we actually realised actually, you know, we are carers and, and we do need, um, you know, and the support that we needed. We just in our particular case, we, didn't know services were available. It was difficult for us to to find what was available in Swansea. 
until we got connected with the right person um, who then told us about the carer centre. And then after that, brilliant, just absolutely brilliant. But before that, and even during going through the caring journey with dad, we never really regarded ourselves as carers because we were always put, because we, we consider dad, you know, he's, 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 he's our dad, isn't he? You know, he's, he's our family. We're supposed to look after our family, you know. You know, we're supposed to care for him if we're struggling. You know, that's our, you know, pretty much you just feel so bad. You just feel it's your own fault that you're not uh, able to do it properly. But as Irene said, we're not supposed to be doing this 24 hours a day, you know, without all the support, you know, needed. It wouldn't happen in another job, you know, or anywhere. I'm not that I'm calling it a job. You know, we did it because, you know, we loved him. But that support that we could have done with interventions a lot earlier probably would have helped making our care journey a lot easier, a lot smoother. And, you know, and it's just to just to remind people that there are services out there like the Carer Centre who will help just for what you need. You know, it doesn't have to be like a whole swooping in of needing everything. If you just need someone to talk to, that that's who they're there for, you know. But I, I definitely identify with that feeling of guilt, you know, and it'd always be in the back of your mind who's looking after him. You know, is he okay? And it's crushing, actually, the responsibility that you feel for other people looking after them. It's absolutely crushing. And it is something that once you've gone through the caring role, there is no way that you're not changed by it. I'm a completely different person and my mum after doing this caring. And it just just goes into your whole life and just throws it all upside down. And one of the reasons I'm involved in helping set up this hub in Swansea was to help people. If you know where the services are, you know, but if you don't, you've got no idea. There's no way that someone can actually communicate these these things to you. We wanted something to come positive out, out of the caring journey that we went through to say to other people, you don't have to do the path that we went down of guilt and torturing yourself which is you know it's it's quite hard thing to talk about even now what needs to be taken from this is that carers just need to have confidence to a identify that they are carers and they can do that with the help of Irene at the carer centre and other you know carers organizations around the country and b the confidence also to stand up and go I I need help because it's not easy to do. It's not easy to say that we actually need help because we're, I think it's all entrenched in us about the whole societal aspect of, you know, you must be carers because you're a family. When necessarily, not necessarily family carers are, are the best. Thank you. I think um, what would be really interesting, Irene, is, is, is Jude's sort of story here and her experience is something that you're coming across. Yes, um, only this Tuesday we have two drop-ins, one virtual and one physical. And um, with every interaction I've had with carers since we, I knew we were doing this podcast, I've asked them what would they like to say if they had the chance to speak. And um, one lady spoke up in the virtual and Jude was there and the others reiterated her thoughts that there is this guilt or feeling of guilt. They were saying that Yes, they saw it as their responsibility and no one else's. And the fact that there are third sector, there are organisations, and I have to put a plug in for Swansea Care Centre here, where we put in, um, as I said, well-being um, 
well-being activities and well-being, I don't like the word training, but groups, peer groups where you can create resilience. So we have things, you know, looking at people's mental health and emotional health. So creating that resilience very often is dipping your toe. So you're not diving straight into something. So you need to go through those steps of one, oh gosh, so they're putting all these services in. So I must be allowed to do activities. I must be allowed to have a time of my, you know, time of my own. And they might need counselling to come to that decision or a buddy system to come to that decision. But this one, Kara was saying that even though they see there are services put in there, there are well-being um, groups, peer groups there to, to help them feel stronger and to make that transition into being them again, or even, you know, even if maybe work, work opportunities, if that's what they wanted, there is still that guilt sitting on their shoulders. She said she went to an archery activity and she's learning Greek. But still, on while she's enjoying that, she's still got Mr. Gilt sitting on her shoulders. So I think that's our job as um, support workers is to take that guilt away and and make sure carers are, you know, as I said, it's not going to go away totally, but make sure there's respite there and flexible respite. So um, we have flexible res respite as in it could be a family member, a neighbour or a friend sitting with, that care with a cared for person so that the person can go to these well-being activities and i think that then takes away that fear of will the cared for be safe will they enjoy themselves i think if you know the cared for is enjoying themselves in the company of the person caring for them you are going to enjoy your activity all the more and again it's that guilt isn't it it's like i'm having this happy time but will does that mean that the cared for thinks that i'm abandoning them um so i think that's going to carry that's going to carry on and on and on and we've as workers we have to carry on saying no you have permission to be you and let, let us with the support and services to help you do that. One theme that I've kind of ran with in my research is around this idea of burden and carer burden, which is how it's almost under problematized. You know, we just assume that being a carer is going to be associated with all these negatives and, and, and you know, desperately unhappy and, and some really harrowing things that people have to go through and experience. And what I've sort of come to some broad conclusions about is that if we try to reframe care around the idea of risk and vulnerability, then we can actually help carers, perhaps, and lots of other things that I argue would be helpful if we remove this idea of just automatically associating burden, then we can see care as something that is of risk to individuals and families and something therefore that should be properly supported. And I was just really interested in um, if you agree, disagree, or whether you think there's any any kind of merit in, in trying to challenge that whole idea of it, it being uh, always a burden and whether we can reframe it around this idea of risk or, or vulnerability to risk and to harm to individuals and, and families. Um, I think what we found um, when we went down the route of having uh, carers into the house uh, coming out from you know statutory services and, and third party organisations was that just going down the risk route was if there was a problem where someone couldn't come out, it was always left to, you know, my mum or me to look after 
dad when we actually were at that time doing the caring that they would need like say two people to do so uh or we had to provide him you know so th- there was actually actual physical risk for my mum if she was having to to assist him to, to to get up out of bed you know because she's obviously she's going to kill me for saying this she's quite advanced in her age as well uh and you know for someone of like with with generally the partners are around the same age as them you have queries from agencies going well we can't we can't we can't possibly do that they said well it's okay for someone's partner to do it where's where's the where is the actual risk assessment for you know for them or if there's a problem with prescribed medication carers you know the paid for carers are unable to, to give the medication but it's all right for you know the family carer to do it uh, that's just a couple of examples like i think of, of what happened with us personally but uh, there's no you know well-being checks on the carer that's there 24 hours a day there's no no one checking them to see how they are you know how they're coping are they coping you know do they need any any help no um i think what we found difficult was then when you have the carers coming in they're discussing what they're going to have what they're going to do on the next day off oh, I'm, going, I'm doing this tomorrow i'm getting my nails done and you're there going well, I'm going to be here 24 hours a day. I'm going to be up seven o'clock every morning. I haven't got a day off. When when was my day off? I haven't been away for years. And again, that goes back into that guilt of, well, I shouldn't be asking for a day off. I should be doing this because I'm family carer. But it's okay for paid carers to have all those protections around them. But if you're family, it's just you just get the sense of like, well, you're gonna you're gonna do it anyway, aren't you? You know. And then that that guilt then, if something does happen, um, it's your fault. There is an actual category in the carer's assessment labelled risk. So we're looking at risks both for the cared for and the carer. So it would be just a case of pointing out to the carer that if you do not take up the respite and take time out, you will be exhausted you will be sleep deprived unless you say yes, please. And what? And I think very often the trigger is if you say to them, but what would happen to your mother, your husband, if you became ill? And I, that's, again, it's turning, around, turning it around and making um, the needs of the cared for uppermost, isn't it? But sometimes you have to use that trigger. But there is um, a large a large part of the carer's assessment is risk, risk to the carer. So it might be um, the person um, is unable to meet friends, um, therefore they're at risk of isolation and loneliness, which leads to depletion of peer support. It might be a risk of not able, not being able to maintain relationships with their husband and children because they're, you know, they're because they're caring for their parents and that's affected other relationships. And very often carers won't see that happening. It's incremental as they, uh, as the responsibilities uh, become larger, the depletion in their own networks and in their own lives it becomes quite significant at the end. So yeah, it is part of the carer's assessment and it's good to point that out to carers. I think it's a case of, if you do not have um, rest, then you are at risk of having um, a crisis in your emotional and physical health. It's, it's that thing of putting your, putting your own, what we all said, putting your own life belt on um, so that you can support and, and save others, isn't it? So I think if you use those analogies, then again, because the carers are so used to thinking about somebody else and that's the turnaround 
I know this is probably a really crude um, thing to, to ask you to do, but what would be the sort of a single thing or a, one thing that would help carers or promote this idea of well-being? Um, if you could change one aspect, perhaps, of the carer's assessment for you, I mean, or Jude, for, for you, based on your experience directly caring, would there be one thing or is that is that too much of a, <laughs> a difficult ask? <laughs> I think probably the, the if you could do one thing, which would be just to ask people how they are and just to check check up on them. I know it's not as as simple as all that, but just having that that availability of contacting someone or have them contact you just to check in, because at the time when you have the assessments, things might be okay as they are then, but who do you contact? Again, if something happens, you may not need a whole massive whole uh, assessment again. But just to have someone that you can ring, that you would who would know your whole story and everything, so you don't have to keep repeating it to everyone, would would be you know helpful. That's what I found anyway. I mean, Irene knows a lot more carers um, than I do, so. Um, but yeah, just I just would have really appreciated. I'm mean, my mum would have done. Just appreciate just someone just checking in. No, I, I agree, Jude, is that ongoing support. Thankfully, I've got the luxury to be able to do that in my role. But, you know, that's what we need with um, other services. As people, you know, as others have said to us, so when they were doing care assessments, they didn't know who they were opening their hearts and their stories to. Again, with a carer's assessment, they, um, carers are able to put their story. But as we all know, that story changes day by day, especially if you're caring for somebody with a chronic condition or dementia. But is that, is that line, is, that, is the ability to be able to ring somebody up and not go through your story all the time? And um, we always say, um, social workers now, you, you people will say, I'm not assigned a social worker, we don't have to, um, a family social worker. And I have to point out to them that most social workers are assigned to a case, case and issue. And once that issue is resolved in many cases, and there is a timeline for that, the case is closed. And when something else happens, they then have to go back to the, the, the central point they have to go to in Swansea. And then they have to go through their story. So it's that thing of somebody knowing you, um, hopefully you get on, you get on with that people person and trust that person. And even, even if that person can't, um, find a solution, they can do the ringing for you or they can put you, they can refer you to somebody who can help you with that. Because they, at the end of the day, when you're so exhausted, very often you're sleep depleted. Even ringing, it doesn't matter how eloquent somebody is or how informed somebody is, when there are emotions and exhaustion attached, even a phone call or waiting for somebody to answer the phone seems like a monumental task. So I think it is that ongoing support. Um, I feel I, I should point out that we also care for carers after their care role has finished. So that might be, you know, building up their own lives again. Um, it becomes so much part of people's identity. So we don't close. I don't like close, close cases. We are there for carers. It's ongoing. Whether, you know, they cared for is still around or, where, you know, or, or, or whatever's happened. But we don't close cases. We don't close people. <laughs> and I think 
we're really um, fortunate and, and lucky in Swansea that we've got you, Irene, and, and your colleagues in Swansea Carer Centre and all the volunteers. And in many ways, um, you've been taking matters into your own hands, along with Jude and others. Um, and you've developed and been working really hard to um, set up what's called a dementia hub in Swansea City Centre. Um, so just really interested in just hearing a little bit more about um, that and how that came from because like we say you, you've kind of there's no getting away from the fact that things are really difficult um, across the country you know UK wide in terms of social care provision and support for carers and, and we know we know that situation is there for, for everyone and it's really tricky for people at the moment even more so now um, but like we say in, in Swansea we have we have been very lucky to have some campaigning going on and you've taken matters into your own hands with the Dementia Hub. So could you just tell us a little bit about that as well? Well, Dementia Hub came about from originally from a, a group that Irene's a member of as well, from Dementia Friendly Swansea, um, which was set up in 2014 by Hannah Davis. So we were getting queries all the way through COVID, through the lockdowns uh, about what, what support was around and when we kind of we kind of all got back together again last year and Hannah had the idea of let's set up somewhere central where people can access information about dementia and services in Swansea because what we've noticed from since 2014 till, till now has always been a problem with communication of how do you tell people these services are here if you know about them like I said you know don't you so once you're in you're okay once, you, once you're in the know so so with the support from Irene from the Carer Centre and also from the Swansea Bay Health Board, Swansea Council, the Alzheimer's Society, Age Cymru, um, Swansea University and University Trinity St David uh, we've managed to We've taken over the old Thornton's shop in the Quadrant uh, Centre in Swansea. And that was due to going through the Urban Foundry, which is a social enterprise group. And we set up as a five week initial trial at the end of January. We've got funding till the end of uh, March. Hopefully we're going to be carrying on. So it's a one stop place where people can come in to be uh, get information on dementia. And it could be anyone that's affected by dementia. So if it's anyone's concerned about their, their own um, health or their own uh, memory or it could be about someone who, for a family member or even a friend or a neighbour or a colleague come in and our volunteers will give you information that you need on services that in and around Swansea so it could be statutory services so we could be um, giving people information about services by um, Swansea Council or again for the carer centre and so we don't provide any services as such there we signpost everything so as i said it's been a massive collaboration it's actually with more organizations than what i've just listed so it's it's just amazing how it's all fallen into place and the feedback we've had is brilliant in the first month we've helped over 220 people and that's people that actually interacted with our volunteers so people that just come in just had a little bit of a nosy and left they they haven't been included but it's people who've actually had an inquiry so we've given out a lot of information and the amount of people that didn't know the carer centre was there when they're in receipt of, you know, carers allowances was amazing. It, it, it was just quite scary, actually. So we'd, you would hope that with this, what we're doing in there will help people just access more services 
benefits, everything, just information, anything they might need, just just pop in, you know, and, and they can pop in because it's open seven days a week, 11 till three, with the Saturday, I think, is the busiest day. Again, because we when we were looking at setting it all up, people were struggling to access services if they're working during the week or be able to phone uh, things that are open office hours. It's fantastic. And I think it's been described as well as sort of taking dementia onto the high street. You know, it's it's somewhere where people can see they're passing by the shop here, not expecting to really interact or engage with these issues, but um, are being personally touched by them. Um, and they can actually sort of access all this support going about their daily daily routines anyway. And I know, Irene, that's made a big difference to how you can deliver your services as well and being able to reach a lot more people absolutely um so so it's it's in the middle of a quadrant busy thoroughfare for people and it's been it it has big a big sign saying dementia hope it's made dementia part of everyday life is creating awareness as well as an information resource and as you say says many have accessed swansea care center services but not gone any further or accessed alzheimer's and i think carers ration themselves so they they access one service and say thank you very much and don't and it's our job i think that's the other thing is it's brought all the agencies together we're working as a whole where you know that we I think we are starting to put those glue the glue dots in between the different services and working as a unit um, and the dementia friendly forum and it's thanks to people like Jude and Hannah um, it's their tenacity and you know Anastasia's stories that has that have made this happen. Hannah Davis, to quote Hannah, she said, "I just wanted to make a sense of uh, of a past story, and that's you know she's she has a full time job and a, and is a full time mum." But Jude and Hannah have been knocking on people's doors and saying saying things that other people are too frightened to say, and and look where it's got us. So it's thanks to to people, thanks to carers, basically. And actually, many carers are now coming in as volunteers into the help, aren't they? And that's given them another identity. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it just it's so positive, and in especially now in this climate, it, it's just so so desperately needed. So, mm-hmm. um, thank you both. It's been really really interesting and really engaging conversation, and I'm sure we're we're, we're lucky we can continue it after this podcast as well. Thank you to the new Centre for Care, which is a new research centre funded by the ESRC. And I'm sure you can access and find out more information on their website. Um, So that's the end of this podcast. And thank you, everyone. Thank you.